G'day and welcome to episode number 18 of the Quantum Feedback Podcast. Welcome to the Quantum Feedback Podcast, where together we'll explore the bridge between science and spirituality, translate the messages of the divine, and play the infinite game to live, love, and learn life lessons. I'm your host, Tino Beth. Let's dial in to quantum feedback. Welcome to the show. This episode is brought to you by Autodidact Polymaths. Now, Autodidact Polymaths historically have played a major influence in society. They learn for themselves and they know much about many things. Now, this is a system that you can implement into your life. You can learn this skill. You can acquire this methodology of learning your way through the 21st century and navigating a path that's clear of contradictions and and aligned to the truth of your highest purpose. That is really like the pinnacle of an autodidact polymath is acting out of inspiration and knowing much about, like, and knowing a wide range of subjects to have the confidence and the capabilities of navigating this life that we're living in these, you know, crazy, tumultuous times. So, if you want to learn more about how to become an autodidact polymath, go to autodidactpolymath.com. Today's guest is Kevin Cole from Unity of the Polis. Now, Kevin discovers and researches and looks into stuff way, 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 way deeper than, you know, ordinarily we do in modern society and his insights on Western civilization, on international relations and on education, education theory are mind blowing to say the least. So I hope you enjoy this deep dive into education theory, the trivium and a little bit about insights into the Western world. Yeah, so thanks for jumping on the show, Kevin. I'd really like to um, to dive into, for a moment, your um, the, the brain model that you've been putting together, because this seems like a life, you know, a body of life's work that you've been creating. And, you know, and, and lead us into what is the Trivium Method and, and how can we use that, you know, realistically, because it seems like today, we need this more than ever to um, to have a, a sort of a truth discovery method of of figuring out what is real and what is false, and and things are happening so quickly that it's really important to to have some sort of a, a backbone, a foundation to go with. Sure. Uh, well, I'm happy to touch on that, and it's great to be here. Um, as far as the personal brain, this is a software that uh, I was introduced to by Richard Grove back in like 2009. And at the time, I was very heavily focused on the social sciences and social psychology, um, the manipulation of uh, you know Wundian uh, psychology into behaviorism. And uh, Richard had been using this brain model in in a great way to lay out uh, large swaths of information and collate data. Uh, in a in an organized manner, and I found it very very valuable. Uh, so I started off with what was called the Yale Institute of Human Relations, which was like a precursor sponsored by the Rockefeller Organization in 1929, meant to import uh, Wundian psychology into one of the first ever systems theory approaches of 
game planning society. They called it kind of a society in a box. And so what I did was I, you know, you with this brain software, you take one individual uh, thought or one individual organization, which my mine started with the Yale Institute of Human Relations Advisory Committee, uh, which was kind of a nexus of the Rhodes Transnational Network, the Wundian Psychology, as well as the Pilgrim Society in America. Um, and we can get into some of those topics as well. But uh, that's that's where I started mapping this out. So it allows you to create like a parent-child relationship as well as like a cousin or organizational relationship. And it, it's really basically organized in the way that one organizes their own brain. But uh, given that over time, there's a lot of data loss uh, in what you can actually keep track of. And, you know, when you're reading books and, and taking in information, it's nice to have uh, you know, a placeholder for some of those things. So you can map out these organizational structures and then reference them in a way that is invaluable to other people. So I make this available on my website, which is uh, uopmedia.com or unityofthepolis.com. I'm in the process of a website redesign. So I'm going to be uh, using both of those at the time. But uh, I make this available. Uh, I've made it available since about 2009. And I've, I've amassed over... 11,000 individual entries and over 60 or 70,000 interconnectivities of those instances. So I really built out from social psychology, uh, a lot of the work that we put into the documentary film, State of Mind, The Psychology of Control, which I co-wrote with Richard Grove. Uh, and uh, Lisa Arbacheski was a narrator on that project. And uh, so a lot of that originated in those areas. Um, I was also involved in a project that I'm very proud of called The Ultimate History Lesson, a weekend with John Taylor Gatto uh, that I co-produced with uh, Tragedy and Hope and uh, worked on the transcript and was able to meet John and become friends with him. And uh, he's actually the one that encouraged me to pursue the work that I'm doing now in a, in a much more organized fashion as far as writing a book. Um, and my personal brain to date is largely centered around the trivium or liberal education uh, going back all the way to Rome and Greece, um, really trying to map out some of the earlier claims that were being made. For people that aren't familiar with what the trivium is, uh, the trivium as described in modern times uh, was really brought to the forefront by an individual on a podcast by the name of Gino Dinning. Uh, Gino Dinning uh, kind of took an amalgamation of ideas that he learned from his grandmother, uh, some Freemasons, and uh, some of his own intellectual pursuits, as well as like Dorothy Sayers' Lost Tools of Learning. Um, and th this was, his, his intention was to impart a reasoning method uh, that he felt was a, you know, like a lost tool, a historical lost tool that could be organized to uh, methodically think your way through individual instances or problems or uh, spot fallacies and things like that. Um, what I discovered was a lot of the claims relating to the lost tools of learning um, intersected with a lot of the research that I do on the Rhodes Milner Roundtable Network. So as far as the what the trivium method as described by Gino Dinning or as described by Dorothy Sayers, um, the intention uh, was put forth as a way to um, collate data, uh, organize and reflect on data, and then be able to express that data. Um, and it was really a metaphor for the classical liberal arts education, which was always a normative, authoritative structure, going back all the way to Isocrates. Uh, 
Um, a lot of our educational history uh, has been uh, sorely misunderstood, even by people that are most respected uh, within our uh, historical discussions. Uh, many of the American founders uh, voiced lots of criticism against liberal education and uh, Plato and the Neoplatonic interpretations of the one and the ideas of the great chain of being. Um, the idea that there's an orderly hierarchy to the name, to the, to the, uh, to the, to the language and to all language, going back to a supreme name giver that came, came down and gave names to things. So what we're really talking about is about the concepts of universality and universality of language that leads to a ubiquity that creates cultures over time. Um, as far as the trivium method, I do think it is helpful for people to have a dialectical understanding of the process of their own reasoning uh, as an intrinsic value. Because uh, we all, in my view, uh, and this is something I've, I've learned over time through my, through my research, um, that really the trivium is an externalization or a making in, uh, extrinsic or making available to people what they already possess. Um, you know, we all possess an innate sense, perception, and judgment just by being a human being, you know, um, where the trivium historically uh, existed, um, not in modern time, uh, which has been largely skewed and erroneously, in my view, um, was as an authoritative and dogmatic and normative structure of education. It was about buttressing the uh, elite classes. Um, and this education was not meant for the masses, but not in a way that was um, kept from them to keep them stupid per se, but it was to keep to create an insular uh, elitist aristocratic education at the top. You know, it started off in the monasteries. Uh, you know, the trivium goes back to the, the term trivium uh, exists only uh, known back to like the year 730. Uh, and this is under an individual by the name of Alcuin of York. And Alcuin of York was the archbishop, archbishopric of York, who then went on to petition the Catholic Church for an archbishopric, but ran into Charlemagne and became Charlemagne's educator. And what, he, what Charlemagne did was use this trivium idea, this grammar, logic, and rhetoric uh, filtered through the uh, uh, Christian tradition uh, to, to spread his empire, to conquer and this was a way that they educated the children at the palace school at Aiken uh, and the sons and daughters of the, uh, you know, the families of the king and of the people of the court. Uh, this was a normative education. And it, and it remained that way all throughout history. Uh, grammar, logic, and rhetoric today is simply elementary school, intermediate school, and uh, high school. Uh, and this is where John Taylor Gatto's work comes in so invaluable, is that what he actually recognized was that there's this ominous continuity that has existed all the way back to Greece. It's hard to put your finger on. It's hard to elucidate to people because it takes time. You know, he, we did a five-hour documentary with him in which, uh, you know, beforehand he wasn't familiar with the lost tools of learning. That was brought up to him by us because that at the time we had just been introduced to this idea of the lost tools of learning in Dorothy Sayers. John Taylor Gatto, we gave him that paperwork. He looked at it at his hotel and just, and spoke on it because he read about it the evening before. He knew of Dorothy Sayers. He knew she was this and you know uh, detective novelist who was you know friends with C.S. Lewis, the eugenicist and all these different things. But the, as far as the trivium itself, that was really off of his radar in a major way.
upon many of the visits uh, to his house I uh, with Richard and Lisa while we were helping him to uh, get through some of his medical uh, issues and, and uh, obtain dentures. And I, I had many conversations with him about the history of the trivium. And that's really through, you know, through his encouragement and, and largely through Richard and Lisa as well. That's where I embarked on, you know, really organizing what I had already collated uh, in a way that I think would be palatable to other people. Uh, and it's really a lifelong kind of process. I mean, I, I have many chapters of my book ready for release, um, but I also am, you know, trying to put this in a way to, you know, put it out in media that is palatable to people of today. Uh, not everybody has the time to read a book on the history of liberal education and why that matters to them, why they need critical thinking or why they don't, um, how this affects, you know, how this, how this relates to cybernetics and to just, you know, culture universally. It's hard to spell out for people. Uh, so what I, really what I've been doing is I started a podcast called The Ominous Continuity, on uh, which I've been laying out a lot of the early uh, goings-ons of the Rhodes-Milner Roundtable Group. Um, and and I've, I've, I've shown that the, the purpose of the you know, Cecil Rhodes-Milner uh, Roundtable uh, in the Confessions of Faith by Cecil Rhodes, he says he wants to use a college surrounding this individual by the name of John Robert Seeley and his English-speaking idea in order to perpetuate this idea of British Commonwealth and British Empire. And when you really look into uh, the English-speaking idea by John Robert Seeley, you find that this was the creation of an English trivium. Uh, because in, in, the, in the upper uh, elitist schools in England at the time, they were still learning in Latin, they were still learning in Greek, and uh, they were, what they decided was that they were not going to be able to perpetuate their culture. And so instead of reading Ovid, they needed to be perpetuating Shakespeare. So they shifted the trivium and created an English trivium for English schools. And this was the creation of the English trivium, trivium as we know it. Now, some of the American founders had already embarked on uh, creating a language aside from uh, English as we know it. This was American English, where they created neologisms and they decided that they wanted to divorce themselves from a lot of the oppressive language structures, as well as the, you know, the Christian Godhead inherent to that, that structure. Um, so I, I know I'm going off on a pretty big rabbit hole here. So if you want to stop me and, you know, put me back on track, uh, I'd be happy to, you know, give you a little bit more specific because I, I'm in the process of correcting a lot of misnomers surrounding what people think is the trivium method. And when they find out the things that I have to say, I think it's going to clarify um, you know, much of what I've been much, much of what I put out, um, you know, Dorothy Sayers' Lost Tools of Learning was primarily introduced into the United States by a CIA officer and skull and bonesman by the name of William F. Buckley. And William F. Buckley was uh, was pretty much the the conservative, uh, you know, Oxford uh, uh, in love with Oxford, uh, mostly responsible for the creation of the National Review magazine in the United States. And this is where he perpetuated the Lost Tools of Learning and made it famous. Uh, it was published in 1947. He published it uh, within 10, 15 years after that. And as a result of that one publication, the entire American Christian homeschooling movement was born because there's an individual in the United States by the name of Douglas Wilson who wrote a book called Recovering the Lost Tools of Learning because he fell in love with this idea of Dorothy Sayers. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but people haven't done the actual grammar on who is Dorothy Sayers. What does she think of Americans? What does she think of Australians? What does she think while she's lecturing at the Royal Institute of International Affairs created by Lionel Curtis, who was the head trustee of the Rhodes Trust responsible for perpetuating Rhodes' last will and testament? 
And uh, you find that she was a member of this group called the Moot. Uh, and the Moot was ran by J.H. Oldham. And he created the Moot as an homage to the Rhodes Roundtable group because he had been intimately involved in the Rhodes Roundtable group going down to South Africa and uh, instituting a lot of the early uh, apartheid uh, strategies of, you know, dividing people by their race, religion, uh, and creed, uh, and uh, trying to, uh, you know, make things uh, palatable for the empire down there. So what we think we know as the Trivium um, is really just a externalization of common sense. Uh, because I, I believe that we all have the ability to take in grammar or take in information, uh, to use logic, to collate that information, and then to be able to express that to other people. And, and to, to uh, deify this Western tradition is to nullify the indigenous cultures and their historical meaning and their ability to reason within their own structures. Um, and wh where it really comes in is that people, uh, you know, it, the, the, the history of liberal education has always been one of the civilized versus the barbarians. Actually, the word barbarians comes from babar, which was to denote those that didn't speak your language. That's the sound they made to you. Babar, babar, you know. Uh, but but uh, there, there's a, there's a Neoplatonist strain of history that is largely totally incorrect with regards to where the Trivium comes from. People will tell you that it comes through Plato and Aristotle. Well, Aristotle had nothing to do with the Trivium. It was outside of his purview. Now, when the medieval universities were created, certain academics made sure that Aristotle was inserted into the Trivium structure, where people would study logic or study Aristotle's logic when it became available. But largely throughout the medieval times, uh, the majority of his work was not even available to people. You know, it wasn't until much later that they, they instituted this. So liberal education starts with Isocrates. And Isocrates started a school six years before Plato. And his school was meant to create what they called a total education or the encyclios paideia. This is the modern word of the encyclopedia. This was to be a authoritative education. He wrote uh, these, uh, these uh, fictitious letters to King Nicocles, where he uh, states basically that you need to adopt these arts in order so that you will have the virtue in order to rule over others. Because this is, the, this is a process in which virtue is created. This is the same virtue that all of the politicians pretend to mimic when they run for office, you know, uh, until their, their tweets get leaked or their, you know, their photos or whatever they did wrong in their life and get canceled or whatever, but uh, such is the reality we're in today. But this, this history goes back to Isocrates. He created the liberal education within the rhetorical tradition. Um, and over time, uh, most notably through um, Cicero and through uh, the, the works of Donatus and Priscian, which made up most of the grammar. Grammar was never, you go out into the world and you say, oh, that's a tree, and I'm taking in all this information, and this is really helping me learn stuff. Grammar was Donatus and Priscian and Ovid and whoever they thought was top shit of the day. Pardon my French. But whoever they thought was the most intellectual, uh, you know, the, the, most, uh, the most virtuous that you could learn from. Uh, sometimes it was the, the Greek gods. Sometimes it was uh, the local guy at the Agora who was having a good week. You know, this is who you would take in. And, you would, and, and so uh, grammar, logic, and rhetoric were not systematized to mean the trivium uh, until Alcuin of York, uh, until, you know, this archbishopric uh, attempt by Alcuin. Um, and, and York, no coincidence that, you know, the York, like York Rite Freemasonry, 
there's a Freemasonic lodge named after Alcuin called the Alcuin Lodge, where they deify him for this this creation. Uh, and one of his one of his uh, proteges uh, uh, was very interested in in method as a way as uh, as a way of um, you know uh, interacting with the world. So. I'm going to, I'm going to pass it back to you. And if, uh, if you can give me, you know, give me some questions that, you know, if you want me to touch on certain areas, but that, that's an overview, that's really uh, a, a mouthful, but I, I've, I've outlined this on my website. I've written numerous papers about this. I've done several two and a half hour long uh, presentations on the trivium and, and, and I'm always happy to find anybody who wants to talk about it. So, mm. so Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for sharing that, man. That was really interesting and fascinating diving into the history. So what you're saying is it's really like an elite schooling, elite private schooling sort of formula that they would teach in-house to give the students a structure to wrap their heads around, to give them this intuitive sense of their environment and, and, and their, you know, enhancing their natural ability of being able to navigate the world. So you know, if, if anything we can take from it, you know, from a homeschooling perspective and then from like a, you know, living out in the world perspective is that the more that we can automate this sort of process, this sort of like, um, you know, intuitive process of, of um, what do you want to call it? Like critical thinking or sort of just, the you know, just having common sense, really. Coming, common sense of basing your actual thoughts and your, your feelings on stuff that you're actually processing in real time as opposed to the stream of sort of um, hypnotic information that you have in your subconscious that really can then dictate your, your reality in, in a big way. Sure, yeah. Um, I, I think the, the original intent with the Trivium uh, historically was it was to be an analogical reasoning method. You know, this is how they would impart what was virtue, what was morals, what were ethics. I mean, Trivium actually, you know, uh, Alcuin translated it as ethics. Um, you know, so you have ethics and physics. Um, but the, the, the history as we've been taught it is largely uh, skewed. Uh, people, people go back through Martianus Capella, uh, who is is often cited as uh, bringing the seven liberal, seven liberal arts forward, but the the term quadrivium was actually coined before the term trivium uh, by Bothius, uh, who who then uh, imparts this information through his work in the uh, 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 it through through Martianus Capella in the Marriage of Philology and Mercury, where you find out that there weren't always just seven arts. Uh, you see a lot of people because it it's there's 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 assumptions made about the number seven all throughout history and people like them to like the seven liberal arts to have been seven, but I can show you different times throughout history where the arts were nine or the arts were 11 and others were shaved off in order to, uh, you know, create, uh, apprenticeships, some of these things, uh, in architecture and, uh, other areas. So it was not, not about this like symbolic number seven that is usually glorified within like the Freemasonic realm of, 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 of education. And people talk about this three, four connection and, and Pythagoras and it's just nonsense. It's not real. Uh, it's almost made up out of whole cloth, like a Mad Lib. 
but it's repeated often throughout history because you know we because history is constantly unfolding um there are there is numerous scholarship today i recommend people look into the the works of james muir m-u-i-r uh, and i've referenced his work before um in in showing how you know liberal education uh, as people keep attributing it to plato and aristotle is simply not the case now if people want to strip this bare totally bare and they want to have a you know use it as a three-step reasoning process i'm all for it um it's just when it gets like ascribed as some sort of lost tool, um, something that is hidden from us throughout time that they, they, them, those were keeping from us to, you know, to, to, to hurt us. Now there are those aspects, of course, if you, I mean, uh, it's, it's not, you know, it's, it's the only reason we don't all change our oil is because it's not convenient for all of us to do so. Uh, if we all had the knowledge to do so, we could be very self-sufficient. We could do that ourselves. We wouldn't have to go do that to somebody else. Um, and, and you find that a lot of these, you know, there are some really interesting craft works and art, art uh, histories that you only find through apprenticeships, you know, glass blowing, uh, the history of glass blowing throughout Italy and things like that. It's extremely fascinating. Um, and you find how knowledge is kept from people because if you, have a, a method and technique that is unique and you can use that to, uh, you know, uh, planned obsolete, uh, impart a planned obsolescence to other people where it's not so widespread. You can occult knowledge for your own benefit. This is how, this is how largely how society in unison works, right? Like, um, if we all went to school and they all taught us on like, you know, right when you turn whatever age you can drive in Australia, they all taught you how to change your own oil, how to do all these different things and taught you how to be autonomous rather than teach you how to take it down the road to somebody else. But that creates the economy that creates the local economy because that knowledge gap that you don't have and your convenience gap of not wanting to do it, you know, uh, leads to that exchange of goods with other people. So uh, it's interesting when you're talking about autonomy, like, you know, how much of society is a give and take. Uh, in those regards, because of an occulting of knowledge or because of a a uh, level of opulence uh, attained in that society in which one doesn't have time to deal with their own uh, um, their own predicament. Um, mm. So if it helps people, you know, me personally, I don't use grammar. Lo grammar logic and rhetoric are never foreign to me. I was taught grammar logic and rhetoric in school. It was not taught to me as a trivium, a tripartite, triumvirate. Uh, it was not taught that way. Um, I learned about logical fallacies in school. I learned about logic by just like skateboarding as a kid, because like when you step on a skateboard, it's like, oh, well, there's a trick I can do called an ollie. And if I push my foot here and I slide up my foot here and I jump, then I'm, I'm doing the logic of it. And then now the expression of it is to actually complete the trick. And so, you know, I, I think that I think we do a disservice, do a disservice to humanity to seed our natural reasoning process to some Western culture device um, overall. Now, as far as like getting to the NF, you know, the, 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 the TFGs, the too far gones, the people out there that aren't listening, the people that are brainwashed, that, that are only paying attention to the authoritative structures because that's what they, they've been taught all their lives. This may be a good way to get in the door, you know, to let them know that, hey, like maybe you haven't exercised your own reasoning process here. Um, maybe if you take an inventory of what your problems are. And then you make a list of the ways that you could solve those problems and the, the, the pros and cons of each of those uh, aspects. And then you go out and try to express them. You try to do the rhetoric of that. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I do think that there is a, I think that, you know, we all get caught uh, in our own little feedback loops where you, you're, you're picking up somebody else's gesture or you're repeating something uncritically that you find out later to be untrue. And you're like, man, did I really say that on a podcast? Like, you know, 
and and so it's just a willingness to be humble, a willingness to you know step back and to look objectively. Uh, am I buying into groupthink here? Uh, am I am I putting out a fallacy? Um, you know, is there a way that I could articulate this to other people that, that makes it more palatable for them to take in? Like, uh, for instance, if I go, t- you know, just yelling down the road, 9-11 was an inside job, 9-11 was an inside job. Is that more, in fact, more effective or less effective than just like sending them to Richard Gage at Architects and Engineers of 9-11 Truth and having them look at, you know, basic, uh, you know, histories of building fires and structures and then looking at the insider trading. And there are other ways of presenting this to people. Um, I find that it can be very difficult. Uh, I can be, uh, you know, a lot of the material I look at is intense. You know, Uh, a lot of the things that I contemplate, the books that I read, the information I take in, it, it doesn't lend yourself to having these conversations on a regular basis, which is why I enjoy this so much. Uh, because uh, there's an interest. Uh, but like trying to approach somebody on the street and trying to explain to them the history of liberal education or or why it matters to them that, you know, Cecil Rhodes and his minions decided to, you know, overthrow governments around the world by creating an aristocratic class using the trivium, uh, using the Latin and Greek trivium, you know, people are going to look at you dead-eyed. They're going to be like, it doesn't matter. I'm going to keep thinking what I think. And it, that doesn't affect my life in any way. So, um, it, it, you know, there's that Nietzschean saying, you know, like you stare into the abyss or it stares back at you or whatever. Right. Um, yeah. So uh, let, <laughs> yeah. Let's go downstream a little bit. Let's, let's, let's bring it like a little bit more into today because, you know, we are diving into history here, the history of the trivium and, I don't want to get too lost in, in how, you know, in, in how it can be helpful. First of all, like even just having that natural intuitive um, faculty of reason, you know, while we're navigating ourselves in 2020, but also like how we can use this, you know, sort of, I guess the trivium, we can also distill it down to like input processing and output like a computer. And we're coming up to this new age of like computers sort of running our world in a much bigger way. So what are we left to do? You know, like what, what, from your perspective, what are we left to do when computers are automating, you know, um, changing the oil of our cars and doing all these things? And we don't have these issues that, you know, every generation before us all had. And yeah, yeah, you know, so, so what are we, you know, like from your perspective, what, what is there left for humanity and how can we, do that better and do that in a way that is in harmony with our environment. If our environment is changing so rapidly. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, you know, in my lifetime, I'm not sure how old you are, but I, you know, you went from having to actually look something up in a card catalog in a library or having to look it up uh, very early in computing to, to having the, you know, the access to the world's answers that we think we know a world encyclopedia in the palm of your hand. Right. Mm. Like, yeah, this is, uh, you know, what what uh, H.G. Wells talked about with a world encyclopedia and triplicate. You know, it's not just Wikipedia. It's that you have a device that that people treat as the objective truth in a lot of ways, because uh, you can get online and ask a question. And depending on how many people have voted that the truth or or, you know, virtue signal that it is, um, then it is. And so it's hard to it's hard to combat that. Uh, you know, it's uh, uh, I, I think that. Society itself, as a result of, you know, 
a lot of factors, uh, unbridled corporatism and, and, uh, you know, manufacturing and things like that is moving towards phasing out human beings from the manufacturing process. Um, and what that's going to do to, uh, global society is, uh, not only fascinating, but also kind of frightening, you know, um, in this country, there's a, a large workforce that is dependent upon, uh, truck driving, you know, uh, you know, moving goods from one city to the next, moving your produce, moving your electronics, moving anything that they're not putting on planes, boats, barges, and whatever. Um, and if these all become automated, uh, where you have, you know, driverless vehicles or you have attendant vehicles where you just have a guy that is specialized in computers, you're going to put a lot of people out of work. Um, and and that's going to happen well, it's already happening in car manufacturing. It's already happening in whirlpool washers and dryer manufacturing. It's already happening in many different ways um, where human beings are either becoming simply a cog that allows the machine to, to, to exist and to process because, it, because we as humans provide that, that human input that it needs to be able to complete the feedback loop or, or it's phasing us out altogether. Um, volitionally of course we could all abandon our cell phones and go back to a flip phone right like we could all we could all you know demote ourselves uh try to you know take a step back but are you hurting yourself too because i uh, with 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 every technology uh it can be used to you know a gun can be used to feed your family or it can be used to, to kill people you know um and and so technologies are dual use it's hard to uh you know shun it all because the work that i do wouldn't be possible without it Right. Um, I, you know, I make, uh, I, I do some music on the side where I produce b instrumentals on the computer. Uh, I output them to, uh, digital interfaces. Um, I record them with this technology. Um, any technology can be limiting or it can be cumbersome. Um, where it, where, it, where it hits our livelihood is, uh, is another, is another thing like, uh, the manufacturing base in this country, I don't know how things are in Australia, was largely shipped out with NAFTA and these other trade agreements that, you know, the powers that be, uh, specifically George H.W. Bush and William Jefferson Clinton uh, and Al Gore and others, um, you know, allowed to take place in order to kind of bolster this idea of a world economy by propping up other places around the world and selling out their own citizens, selling out their own, you know, manufacturing base. Um, so where we go with that, I don't know. I, the, 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 the knee jerk reaction online is they, they tell farmers and, and factory workers to go learn to code, you know, go be a coder, go learn to go learn HTML, go learn C plus plus, you know, and you've got, you're not going to get 55 year old people that can't check their email to go do that. You know? So I worry about those aspects. I worry about, you know, how technology can be used that way. Um, but most of this was predicted uh, and, and anticipated by some of those that made it happen. You know, Norbert Wiener himself went against a lot of his own cybernetic uh, ideas once he realized how they were going to be used, you know, uh, at, the, at the advent of the, the cybernetic movement. If your listeners are familiar with uh, cybernetics, the idea of uh, kybernetes or the, the governor or the ship of state, um, you know, that's, that's an idea that goes back to like book six of Plato's Republic um, and was, was reiterated by uh, Stanislaw Bronkowski, I believe his name. Uh, and uh, Norbert Wiener uh, back in the early 1900s, 1920s, and 30s uh, for the Macy conferences, where the technologies that led to, you know, DARPA and the internet and what we have today were all in their infancy. 
Um, not only that, like, you know, they were involved in the, you know, the technocracy movement and the, the, the rural electrification of America and of Brazil. And, you know, like uh, there are some good things that came out of these things that we often look at as very nefarious, you know? Um, and see, um, I, I have a personal connection. I have a family member who, who worked within, uh, one of the early air force projects, uh, called the SAGE system, the semi-automatic ground environment, which was, uh, ran by Jay Forster of the cybernetic clan, you know, the Macy conferences guy. Uh, he, uh, not, it's not no relation to Heinz von Forster, but Jay Forster, uh, is responsible for like whirlwind. I believe it was called, I may be confusing a Snowden program. I believe it was called whirlwind, but I have to look into that. Uh, but yeah, this was a this was like an early warning system, like um, like an early NORAD or early air traffic control kind of thing, where they created these large buildings where you would have an individual who would sit within the computer mechanism, and you'd have a screen and a a little gun that you put on the screen, and you hit the dot, and you identified what the the target was, what the what the what the incoming bogey was coming from the next state over. This is before they had it all in one system. So the human would be required to identify it and then call the next person and say, hey, you've got XYZ coming your direction at this, how many knots and that and the other. And these are all, you know, technologies that facilitated what we know as NORAD and air traffic control and uh, went into the creation of the internet. And uh, it's very fascinating. Um, but I so I, the, the short answer to your question is that technology can be used for good or it can be used for bad. The same technology that oppresses us can also be used to free us in many ways. Um, but it also creates a uh, a logic within logic kind of situation uh, where you're not going to be able to undo the, the the logic of the reality you live in because it is so intertwined with the previous logic that went into it. Uh, one at Mortimer Adler, who was the uh, proponent of the trivium, who uh, created the great books of the Western world with a lot of these other union now world, uh, world uh, federalists uh, that were part of the Rhodes organization. Uh, Mortimer Adler was a student of a guy by the name of John Erskine. And John Erskine is one of the three people responsible for keeping liberal education alive in the last 150 years. John Erskine uh, was a teacher at Columbia University. He had taught a course to the United States Army as well as British troops and French troops, which was very akin to what became the great books of the Western world. Uh, and one of his student, students was a guy by the name of Mortimer Adler. And in his memoirs, John Erskine says that Mortimer Adler had his mind blown one day when a Jesuit priest came in and was giving a disputation on logic. And Mortimer Adler to that date had thought that there was this one supreme logic that, that, you know, like everything is logical at this point, you know, that it can be defined that, that and this is, this is going to play a big role in explaining the trivium as well, because what he realized is that actually logic exists within systems, you know, uh, within parameters. Okay. Uh, within cultures, within a, a subset of information. Um, and it's in, and, what largely has been the case over time, going back to ancient Greece and especially Rome when they started perpetuating this in a, in a conquering manner, was that you all are the barbarians, we are the intelligent, and we're going to conquer you. This is the white man's burden that the British used all throughout Australia, that they used all throughout South Africa. This is, you know, like, oh, you poor people, you poor aborigines, oh you know, we need to help you out, right? Like we, we, your culture is so barbaric. The things you do are so against our moral standards that we're better than you and we're going to prove it, you know? And, and that's the thing. And, and this is where, you know, like you have to objectively recognize that if, if, if I, let's say, if my morality entails that I don't eat dogs, right? 
But in China, they currently eat dogs, or in some places they were up until the coronavirus. I think they're banning it now. But you know, like there's a there's your your morality is largely inculcated within the society that you exist within. Um, and you know, you find that in you know different cultures where they marry children off without them having a choice on who they're going to marry, and you, you know, all these different you know multiple marriages, polyamorous relationships, da 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 da. You know, like we like to believe because we have our own insular objective morality that that exists everywhere, you know, but you see on the news every day, some guy who lost his morality and killed somebody or kidnapped somebody or did something terrible. Uh, you, you see things, uh, atrocities and things overseas that are taken as normalcy, uh, that, that we would recognize as an atrocity that, that you know, and so the white man's burden idea or this, uh, benevolent virtue idea is that, that ultimately somebody has the supreme name givers instructions you know like here is definitely everything that you're allowed to do and don't do any of these other things and you have the authority in my name to go do that to other people what's that sound like that sounds like the history of christianity right sounds like the history of like uh you know a muslim culture it sounds like the history of many tribal cultures uh this is this is what we do this is a human thing you know uh and because we have largely existed without a view of the earth from the outside uh, we, we've not had that kind of, uh, self-reflection about it that we can have today. Um, you know, the view of the earth from space that changed a lot of things for a lot of people. Uh, if you, you know, if your entire worldview, uh, has been based on an earlier conception, uh, same with when Galileo spoke up, uh, but you always have these people within society, no matter part, what, what, what point in time it is, whether it's a Roman Catholic church or whether it's uh, people that are holding on to their own religious dogmas or anything that are going to say, no, that's too far. You know, the, you're going to crash my version of reality. You know, this is going to create a crash of absolutism. You know, I, I have these absolutes that I believe to be the case. And if I ex accept this new information and, and I have to change my worldview and live within a system that doesn't adhere to that, then that creates cognitive dissonance. Um, so the problem that I have with the trivia method per se is when it's used as a cudgel to beat people over the head with and pretend that you have the ultimate truth because you have a, you have a subset of the truth in a logic within logic kind of situation, uh, within parameters. Um, you know, if we're, if we're talking about, you know, extrapolating scientific things, let's just use the scientific method. I'm cool with it. Like it works. Like the scientific method is good. It, you know, it's solid. Now, not just like generic science. I, there's a problem with that where people are just like, well, science, this scientist XYZ said this, you know, but if you really get into the nuts and bolts and you can replicate something like, oh, if you, you know, do this one thing a hundred times, like a hundred of those times, it has that effect. That's a replicatable thing. Like, well, you don't need the trivium for that. You can use the scientific method. You know, Carl Sagan had a really uh, good quote that I posted on my uh, Facebook page, posted several other places as well, uh, where he talks about how, you know, the, the Greeks and the Romans were actually the ones responsible for dividing the mind and the body. Uh, and that the, the spirit of the Ionians, uh, which went through like Democritus and Epicurus, uh, down through like Thomas Jefferson. This is what he believed. He rejected Plato, rejected Neoplatonism, rejected their control over education altogether. Um, he rejected the Christian do uh, Godhead on top of all of this stuff. Um, so when you ask about technology, you are really asking about the same thing because the trivium uh, in liberal education was a techne. It was a techne, you know, which is the root of what we're talking about. Um, and this was a techne that the slaves or pedagogues would teach the sons and daughters of the elite. 
You know, so they would employ these slaves to teach the sons and daughters of the elite. Uh, and if you really look into the etymology of words like baccalaureus, uh, the bachelor's degree, a baccalaureus is a herdsman that served under a farmer. That's what that means. You know, and so you're an apprentice under a farmer. That's what you're, that's what you are. And then, then after that, you get to become a master. You know, that's your master's degree. And, and that's just where all these concepts come from. Um, I, they're, they're, they're holding on to, um, I don't know how familiar you're, if you'd like me to go into like an introductory kind of, you know, the Cecil Rhodes aspect of this, I can, but depending on, on how to speed some of your listeners are, um, you know, the, the Rhodes scholarships are entirely based on the trivium of classical education, uh, except it's under Latin and Greek disputation. When you go get your Oxford Rhodes scholarship, you do so under what's called the literae humanores, unless you're going for like to be a chemist, you probably don't take those courses, but the majority of them go under what's called the literae humanores or the literature humanities. And this is the, the trivium and quadrivium. Uh, when the trivia, when the Rhodes Scholars were introduced, Rhodes Scholarships were introduced into the United States, it was done so by an individual by the name of William Torrey Harris. For anybody who's familiar with John Taylor Gatto's work, this is one of his arch villains, along with Alexander Inglis. William Torrey Harris was, you know, he's, he's a pretty interesting guy. He wasn't like, you know, he, he believed that 99% out of all, uh, out of 100 were auto- autom- automatons, uh, unable to think for themselves, and that there's a 1%, you know, there's a 1% that, that is worthy of elevating. Um, and there's a lot of nuance to, the, to that. And I've written, you know, uh, uh, academic papers and articles on this on my website uh, in detail for people that want to explore it. Um, but it's, uh, it's it, when he introduced the Rhodes Scholarships into the United States, it was in 1901, 1902. He was the commissioner of education. And in this document, he basically says that uh, America's leaders the ones that are going on to become ambassadors and those that are working in the state department and things like that are woefully unprepared to interact with the world because the world is on this other system that we largely threw off here. Um, and he felt that this aristocratic class, this class of people, these new mandarins um, needed to have this Greek and Latin education, this road scholarship education, because the purpose of Oxford was to create Oxford gentlemen. And I'll be releasing on my website, I have released it for patrons, the, the uh, characteristics of the Oxford gentleman. Uh, and I won't go through them all here, but people can check that out with my work. And it, it details, you know, what the Oxford education was meant to create and what an Oxford gentleman is. And, uh, you know, the kind of individual that can't be thrown off his, uh, off his footing, uh, the kind of individual who, uh, you know, maintains his class structure, the kind of, you know, there's all these different things that I put in. I'm, I'm working on setting up a kind of, uh, you know, a, a mailer through, you know, you, you subscribe to my newsletter, you get this, uh, you know, you get these points, these characteristics of the Oxford gentleman. And I compiled these in, co- in collaboration with John Taylor Gatto. I, you know, I, after the ultimate history lesson for many years, I kept in contact with him through email. Uh, I often uh, would try to space them out. Like uh, we were in colonial times because he was, you know, pecking with one finger and I felt really bad for him to have to reply that way. But you could tell he was animated, uh, you know, in, in, uh, in his responses. And he enlisted me. He said, I've got a buddy, got a friend in academia that'll pay you to distill these characteristics of the Oxford gentleman. Because he realized that I was on the trail of the history of the trivium. And he said to me, he said specifically, you know, uh, on, on uh, several occasions that, you know, he wanted to know who was responsible for the resurgence of the trivium. Because in his view, the trivium has been the ominous continuity that was, that was expanded through an artificial extension of childhood to create public education. You know, so the trivium, grammar, logic, and rhetoric, grammar, school, 
uh, intermediate school and finishing school or high school. This is the, this is the trivium externalized societally. And what John Delgado realized is that over time, we, we as a society have not fig- figured out a way to exist outside of that and still have an, a, an, a, a functioning society. Because if you, you know, if you, I'm all for homeschooling, by the way. Uh, and I'm all for self-directed education. I'm all for unschooling. I'm not advocating sending your kids to public school to be eaten alive. I'm not advocating any of that. Uh, I'm, I'm just recognizing that there's a large amount of people for which economically their only option for their kids to be educated is to go to these public systems at all. Okay. You can't have a, a country of all homeschoolers where, you know, God forbid that one of them is a terrible human being who likes to beat his kid on every second Thursday and molest them or something, uh, you know, and then that's going on for generations because there's no outside of any, you know, people don't think through these repercussions, you know, and the, you know, we like to gravitate towards the, the people that feel, oh yeah, well we would never do that. We wouldn't do that thing, but I wouldn't also kidnap a girl and keep her out in Utah for a while. Like people do, you know, like there's bad people out there. And so uh, the, the, when John Taylor Gatto says in the ultimate history lesson, you know, we just haven't figured out a better way to organize society. That's what he means. You know, mm. like John Taylor Gatto wasn't an anarchist. He wasn't an agorist. He was a, a sometimes libertarian who ran for office himself. Um, you know, he, he didn't like labels at all. Um, and he was very practical in his thinking, uh, and would readjust his thinking based on new information like that. But it's, uh, he was, he was an advocate definitely of homeschool. He had a, a, a mild frustration with how we would ever get to that because he recognized that societies, uh, have a universal component to them. Um, you know, he very much advocated for people to follow their own direction. Uh, he did not feel that the common cores of the time, Bloom's taxonomy, the Carnegie credit system, uh, these earlier versions of the, uh, the new education they're pushing now. Um, mind you, the person that was in charge of all of this new education was a, a former Rhodes scholar as well that put through the common core. The biggest advocate of common core in the United States was a, former Rhodes House representative. Um, Not a coincidence at all. Because when you really look into the history, um, which I've been doing, um, you know, to the detriment of my health and my own future in life at at times, uh, you find that the Council on Foreign Relations was intimately involved in the great books of the Western world. They were intimately involved in the spreading of the trivium in the United States. Dorothy Sayers' works was first spread in the United States by the English-speaking Union. When I talked about earlier, J.R. Seeley, John Robert Seeley, who Cecil Rhodes said, in my last will and testament that I want to, you know, rediscover, re- reincorporate the empire and bring America back into it and all that stuff. He said he wanted to accomplish it by John Robert Seeley in this English trivium, getting rid of Latin and Greek up until 14 years of age, up until 14 years of age, all kids would learn English as their base language. Uh, you would no longer just learn uh, English at home with your family and then come to school and learn Latin and Greek which was the case at the time, even at Eton and these, uh, you know, very uh, prestigious private schools that uh, the uh, elites go to. So they were switching that over and they were, they were realizing at the time, uh, late 1800s, that there were a lot of, the masses were coming online. You know, um, you used to be able to tell the education of different parts of England by the uh, vernacular they spoke. 
and uh, people were getting, you know, very, uh, you know, they were itching for more, itching for more. They realized that the the elites were perpetuating themselves. They were perpetuating their classes, but their children were just cogs in a machine for the industrial revolution, the coming industrial revolution. Um, and so it, it's, it, there's a value for everybody to learn this information um, because it, it is the history of, of how civilization perpetuates itself. Uh, this is what I found most fascinating about John Taylor Gatto's work and the ultimate history lesson, uh, dumbing us down, uh, weapons of mass instruction and, uh, many of his other works. And, and just through conversations with him is that we really haven't figured out a better way to organize society. Um, you know, the only way that, you know, they say of the American founders that they made obsolete what made them what they were, because a lot of the American founders had this classical education. They just outgrew it. I mean, I have letters between Thomas Jefferson and John Adams where they're having this very conversation about the trivium and about education. Um, and this is, you know, like, this is 1820 or something. This is like uh, 1800, early 1800s. Um, and so this is a, a very important, uh, very important piece of history. And that's why I've become so enamored with it, um, especially with a lot of the, the misinformation that is out there about it. Um, I would be the first person to say that having a systematic way of going ab about things is very valuable. Having a way to manage your time, uh, having a way to uh, be disciplined in your own efforts, extremely valuable. Uh, if you want to call that sense uh, or you want to call it grammar, you want to call it perception or you want to call it logic, uh, you want to call it judgment or you want to call it rhetoric, it doesn't really matter to me. Uh, my only qualms are, you know, the the overarching claims that are made about it, um, that it's this lost tool that's been occulted from us from all of time and not realizing that Dorothy Sayers wrote the lost tools of learning at the same time that they were discovering the Dead Sea Scrolls. So it was pretty profitable at the time uh, and interesting to be talking about uh, some Indiana Jones type stuff, you know, um, and, and, and there was nothing lost about it because Oxford University was based on the trivium. You can go to Oxford University and you can see how the education system is based on grammar, logic, and rhetoric. This is what William Torrey Harris said when he introduced the Rhodes Scholarships in the United States. He said, Oxford is the last vestige, aside from the University of Bologna, of the medieval education system. Because when the American Revolution happened, Thomas Jefferson, Ben Franklin, uh, John Adams to a lesser degree, Noah Webster, and others... They sought to dethrone this, uh, this overarching trivium, this, the forms of the trivium. They wanted to erase the forms of the trivium. They wanted to create an American English. They wanted to create uh, a, uh, an open system, an open system in which it was so open that you could believe whatever you wanted. You know, like the ideas in this country that you can, you can have freedom of religion, like you're free to believe the most bizarre stuff, like, and, and perpetuate that for generations, you can do that, you know, and you can live within your own little reality. You can create your own little bubble and think that you have the truth as long as you're not encroaching on somebody else. And, and at the time, those are very radical idea. Um, so yeah, I'll pass it back to you. That's a long-winded way to say that technology is both ways, man. It, it, uh, this can be used for good. This can be used for bad. Um, I very much worry about the deindustrialization, uh, the further deindustrialization of all of our societies, um, because what what it's going to lead to is a you know kind of a subservience, um, you know like a you know like a forced uh, kind of welfare kind of situation, perhaps. Um, 
I don't know. There's a lot of people talking about it these days. There's an American politician by the name of Andrew Yang who ran his whole campaign was on how automation was going to, you know, de-industrialize de, uh, and, and put people out of jobs and, and make the economy worse than it is. Uh, but his solution for that was to, you know, give everybody a universal basic income, right? Mm. Um, when that's not a new idea. That goes back to Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King talked about universal basic income, um, Thomas Paine, one of the founders of the American Revolution, who people have insinuated was a member of the Bavarian Illuminati because of his, uh, you know, his support of the French Revolution. Um, he wrote a paper called Agrarian Justice, uh, in which he believed that if you were the richest landowner in your community, that by default, you owe something to that community, that you owe a pittance, you owe, you owe a basic income to that community. And, and he, Thomas Paine is often cited as one of the forerunners of Social Security the social security system in the United States, you know, of course it, uh, you know, uh, FDR and, and others, uh, implemented this, but, but these ideas, um, you know, a lot of American libertarianism has been co-opted by, uh, you know, uh, Austrian economics, which was like the, 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 the play thing of David Rockefeller, like David Rockefeller was intimately involved in the Montpelier society. Um, and, uh, you know, these, uh, Hayek and, and others, um, and, and invested in their ideas for their class. They didn't want like a liber, a libertarianism for like everybody. They wanted it for like the corporate, you know, architecture. Um, but yeah, there's, there's some really good critiques by Chomsky and others that, that show how, you know, many of the American founders are, are out of line with what we now think of as like American libertarianism or, or that that comes out of the Austrian school of libertarianism, uh, which is why I don't adopt labels or anything. I'm just a guy who studies history and makes objective decisions based on the information I know. I don't need an overarching identity complex or ism to attach to my being. I don't need to live that. I don't need to rep it wearing on a shirt, any of that. Because my views, like, because I'm a fluid person, you know, like mm -hmm. my, my views can, I, I, I leave myself open to, to change when ideas that are in contrary to what I think I know come available. You know, I, uh, I, I, I released an album with some really good friends of mine, uh, friends of mine called, uh, we, we, we have a group. It's uh, like a poetry over hip hop beats kind of thing, like a hip hop kind of music. It's called mutual concepts. And, uh, me and my, uh, couple good friends, Adam and Lucas, uh, released an album back in 2007 called the crash of absolutism. And people can check that out on like Bandcamp, mutual concepts.bandcamp.com. Um, I also, uh, released music myself under decibel poets, uh, and I, I find those art forms to be um, much better to express a lot of the ideas that I have um, because it it provides a uniqueness to it that's not based on a universal standard. You know, you try you try to have a conversation with somebody that is a diehard one way or another libertarian. He's going to tell you or or Republican or Democrat, not picking on libertarians or anarchist or agorist or whatever you want to call it. Um, People have their own ideas, their own views of what is right. And this is ideology. And ideology is a word that was created by Destut de Tracy. Uh, Destut de Tracy was a follower of Condillac in France. Um, and Condillac is his, his ideas uh, of technology before technology led to a lot of where we are today. But the stunt to Tracy was a good friend of Thomas Jefferson. And he wrote to Thomas Jefferson. And he was like, hey, man, I'd really like to get my French work published in English. Would you be willing to translate it? And what do you think of it? Like, what do you think of my work? And, and the stunt to Tracy's work was taking the trivium, grammar, logic. And instead of rhetoric, he was implanting ideology. 
he, he supplanted rhetoric and put ideology because what he realized was that in a system that we don't know the neoplatonic God, the supreme name giver, none of us have an idea of the ultimate truth, you know? So, so it is ideology that we are expressing at the end of this road of, of finding our, our truth, unless it's something that is scientifically replicatable, in which a case, like I said, use the, use the scientific method and we can all agree on the things that are, you know, science-based and we can agree upon the things that are a little bit more wishy-washy, a little bit more in your head or in your head space or in the introspective realm, uh, in the personal decision realm, you know, what's good for me may not be good for you. Some people are vegan. Some people are not. Some people are paleo omnivores. Some people are, you know, frugivores, you know, whatever. Uh, but each one of those people will tell you their way is right and yours is gross and yours is immoral or yours is not, you know, you, you get what I'm spelling, you know, you get what I'm saying. So, so it's, it's to use the trivia method to assert a truth claim and to beat somebody over the head with it. That just makes people, it, it, it turns people off because it's, it's not only inaccurate because you don't hold the supreme truth. Uh, just because you've analyzed something in a systematic way doesn't mean you've arrived at the right conclusion. Like if your Godhead is, I believe that the entire coronavirus is meant to stop Donald Trump, then you're going to be filtering that. Your grammar logic and rhetoric is going to be like, oh man, here's where they did this one thing and oh, they're only doing it in democratic states. And, rah! You know, and this, is, this is what you do. And so to pretend that you were objective from the things that you were seeking is a fallacy in itself. Now, if we can all sit and agree and we can have a conference and we can be like, okay, let's avoid the things that, you know, you can, you can strip it down some. But like without access to this neoplatonic idea of the one beauty, the beauty that exists above all, or the, the idea of the supreme name giver that filters through, uh, you know, um, much of Freemasonry is based on neoplatonism. If you look into the history of Freemasonry, like the, the, you know, it took me years to just be able to say that sentence. I swear to God, I've been researching this stuff for a long time, but that's what it comes down to is that Freemasonry is based on Neoplatonism. It's based on the idea that there is a supreme game name giver that came down originally and gave names to things. That's why when you get into high, high level Freemasonry, they teach you the name of their God and it's Jabulon. It's a combination of these three different gods into one entity. And it's just, you figure out that you're involved in some Dianetic type stuff, right? This is Scientology, like for yesteryear. This is like the Travelers Club, the Diners Club card of, of the colonial times. This allowed you access into different bars and like gave you the key to the, the world of intellect, right? But it doesn't mean it was the right level of intellect. They, they believe in all kinds of stuff that's not even true. Like half of their rituals are based on an intellectual history that isn't even the case. You know, like their, their, their deification of Plato and things like that, uh, to, to say that it comes from liberal, that, that, that Plato is the, the one that progenerates the, the liberal education when it was Isocrates six years before Plato. But, but we have to realize that there are whole generations and epochs of human beings that have lived and believed erroneous stuff. And we're probably, we're, we're them, we're them too. Like we believe a lot of things that we think are the case that aren't the case. And somebody, some, someday somebody's going to come along and there's going to be another crash of absolutism. And they're going to be like, oh. Like, I didn't know it worked that way. Let's incorporate that knowledge. Oh, it's round? Oh, oh like, oh, you know, whatever. It's, that's what it comes down to is, is it, uh, you know, separating the ego from it. Um, you know, all knowledge, uh, if, if we're expressing it through language, is communal, right? Like, to a degree. Ever since the fall of ba uh, Babel, right? Like the Tower of Babel, that, that, when that fell, that's supposedly when all the universal language went away and it all spread out into the, you know, five C's or whatever, you know, uh, eh, 
it's 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 ideology. So when 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 Thomas Jefferson got this letter from Destat to Tracy, I swear I'm doing better keeping on track today, and I'm gonna I'm gonna make this uh, I'm gonna make this work. But when 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 Destat to Tracy wrote this letter and said, "Hey, will you take my Elements of Ideology book and translate that?" He's like, "Sure, yeah, I'll do that." And he did. And then he wrote him back, and he was like, "I don't agree with you. Like, I don't agree. Like, we don't need that here. Like, we have freedom." Like we have, we've already, we've already nullified the necessity of this. Like we've created a declaration of independence that while it, you know, has original sin and I wrote this while I had slaves and all these other contradictions, like it still nullified the necessity of this ubiquitous reasoning method that would lead to correct ideology. Because without knowledge of the supreme game name giver or without knowledge of the logic of why we are all here, what constitutes why we're having this conversation, why I'm a being with blood vessels and organs and, you know, we don't know any of this stuff. Like, we really don't. We just have a good idea, you know, like we create like taxonomic systems in order to map all this stuff out. You know, we create weather systems and we we name hurricanes after Mexican people, right? Like in, in the United States, like every hurricane is like Hurricane Israeli or Isla or I don't know. I don't know why they do that. It's kind of kind of a weird weird thing to do. But we we name we you give names to things. We create realities out of nomenclature. We create you know like your local sports team, unless they're all from that city, isn't your local sports team. There are a bunch of people that went to a bunch of different schools and then got brought into a corporate environment and they pretend that they're your local team, right? They're not from there. Well, that's how it works here with sports. Like the, I've talked about this before, but this is how I break it down for, for people. Uh, the Washington Redskins or the whoever they're going to be now aren't the Washington Redskins. They're a bunch of people who came from different schools and places across the country. They have no organic unity to that population. There might be one person on the team who grew up in the DC metro area who made the team. And that guy is like, you know, the hometown guy, you know, but like we, we exist outside of that structure all the time. We, we, we create narratives. We're, um, there's a, there's an Australian writer who, uh, I believe she's like a lib- uh, liberal anarchist, uh, Caitlin Johnstone. She's been on fire lately talking about the, 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 uh, the role of narrative uh, in, in culture creation. Um, and when, you know, to, to bring it full circle, T.H. Huxley, generally not thought of as like a super good guy, right? Like, you know, eugenics, friend of Darwin, this guy, he said, I can think of no better conception of culture than the trivium and quadrivium, because that's what the trivium and quadrivium were. They were tools for the creation of a specific kind of culture within the environment that it existed within. Within the Christian Godhead, it was the Roman Catholic Church. The Jesuits, when, when Cecil Rhodes said, I want to create a secret society and want to base it on the Jesuits, well, that's because the Jesuits' education system was called the Ratio Studiorum. And the Ratio Studiorum, when you look that up, is the lineage of Renaissance humanism in the Trivium and Quadrivium. That's where it comes from. And so he's, he recognized how insular secret societies could be created based on a knowledge base. And the end result of the Cecil Rhodes plot, um, for your listeners, Cecil Rhodes was a, uh, a diamond magnet. He uh, started off in England, went down to South Africa to be a cotton farmer uh, with his brother. Then he discovered diamonds and subjugated large amounts of people, became immensely wealthy. Uh, took control of the world's diamond market, used his wealth in order to further the purposes of the British Empire, uh, created a last will and testament, uh, left all of his good buddies and his protégés in charge of making sure that this last will and testament was enacted, and then he died at a young age, at like age 50. Um, if you've ever heard of De Beers Diamond Corporation, this is uh, Barry Barnado and Cecil Rhodes' legacy. This is... Uh, 
where this comes from. And what Cecil Rhodes' money went to was the Milner Kindergarten, which was a group of intellectuals in England in the uh, you know late starting really even before Rhodes uh, with Triumph and Democracy and Andrew Carnegie and the the Cecil Group uh, in England. But but for these purposes, they created what was called the Roundtable, and it was called the Roundtable Journal of Commonwealth Affairs. And the purpose of this Roundtable was to invent what we know as international relations in quotes as an academic discipline. Okay. So like in schools and universities, there was no course you could go take international relations. So what they were doing was they were taking what used to be a first first hand, you know, John Adams goes across the sea and meets with King George and shakes his hand and says, my country doesn't like the thing you're doing here. And I what they did is they took international relations and systematized it as a series of strategies to fulfill their own goals. And the, the strategies that they wanted to enact were these projects of, of empire or what they changed to. They, they, they realized that the British Empire didn't sound so good anymore. A lot of people are learning to read. We need to like dumb that down a little bit. Let's call it the Commonwealth. We're all commonly in wealth together. You know, some of us are more wealthy than you and some of us are more common than others. But we're in a commonwealth, so let's use that. And so they created this commonwealth idea. And in that, the subset of this commonwealth idea was that they were going to create these little miniature versions of Alexander Hamilton's perception of the American Constitution and the American Republic. So they wanted to use the federal model to create these unions of Africa or the Union Now project of Clarence Strite in the United States that Scott Buchanan and Stringfellow Barr and Mortimer Adler and all of these proponents of the trivium were pushing in the United States through the Council on Foreign Relations and through the World Affairs Councils and the Great Books Program and the Aspen Institute. I mean, I'm laying this all out in a more cohesive manner for you than, than it's been done in a while. So I, I, hope, uh, I hope this gets out to some people because uh, this is where it's at. And I, I'm getting better at being able to come full circle and explain to people what I'm looking at and what we're all looking at because I view this as the most important facts. If you're interested in politics and, and autonomy uh, and individual freedom uh, or being able to affect, uh, effectively use your individual freedom to, uh, to hack collective systems, uh, this is the knowledge you need to know. Um, international relations as an academic discipline was created by the last will and testament of Cecil John Rhodes through Alfred Milner, Lionel Curtis, Philip Kerr, Lord Lothian, uh, and others, Arnold Toynbee. Um, Gilbert Murray, um, all of these guys were extremely infatuated in, la- in the late Victorian period uh, and, and, uh, and earlier with Neoplatonism and with the idea of Greece as the model for all of, of all of civilization. So at the same time that they're creating this English trivium for the younger classes that would introduce you until you're 14 years of age, you wouldn't even learn Latin and, Latin and Greek unless you went past 14 years of age. Many kids in England wouldn't even go to school past 14 because they'd go get a job in the factory. So those that were willing to go on into the higher degrees, Freemasonry, higher degrees, would learn Latin and Greek. And they would learn this older system of education. Um, when William F. Buckley introduced Dorothy Sayers' work into the United States, he did so while writing the foreword for a book called Climbing Parnassus, which was about introducing Latin into the collegiate system again. They was really in favor of this because he, they believed that it held the key to all language, which was an idea that Thomas Jefferson, Ben Franklin, John Adams, Noah Webster, and others all rejected in their own personal writings at the time of the American Revolution because they realized that uh, Samuel Johnson, whose dictionaries were the most popular in America and I believe also in Australia, 
um, was was dictating to people how to think because the the wording that they were using the spelling was all in line with um, the authoritative structure that they had just overthrew. So you know you don't stage an American Revolution and then base your entire grammar on the people that you just beat. Like you create your own. You create your own ideological system in which you're no longer subject. Um, and that was what this was all about. Um, so international relations, as we know it as an academic discipline, the first chair of international relations academic discipline was Alfred Zimmern. Um, and uh, they created what was called the Monahue Burton uh, Chair. Uh, I believe that one was at Cambridge. There was another one at the London, London School of Economics later on. Alfred Zimmern is the source for Tragedy and Hope. When Carol Quigley in 1947 met with Alfred Zimmern at the Educational Alliance in New York City, Alfred Zimmern was the one that told Carol Quigley about much of the machinations of the Rhodes-Milner Roundtable. And he did so while pretending, oh, I just got out. I'm done with it. I'm not doing it anymore. I'm, so I'm just going to tell you kind of some things here. I'm writing a book called The Third British Empire, which is all about how we should have done things instead of allowing you all to have your own country. Uh, and and uh, he told Carol Quigley this, and Quigley was like, oh, okay, well, I'm going to ask some of the other members that I've ran into, because they, Quigley was brought in by the Council on Foreign Relations, which is this internationalist think tank created by Rhodes' protégés. Um, he was brought in to be their official historian, you know, to to get a good look at this, write a book that could be, you know, printed for the CIA station chiefs, for people in the State Department. You know, you want the aristocratic class to know how the world really works. It's not necessary for like, you know, the guy who's farming out in middle Indiana or something to necessarily know these things because he's just worried about bringing home his crop. They want to compartmentalize. Um, they want one group of people to have this upper education that facilitates political work. And you have this other class of people that pretends that those people represent them, you know, even as the numbers of possible representation far outstrip, you know, that possibility. In the olden days, like representation meant something. You could say like, hey man, next time you're in DC, can you like tell them I need more, you know, soy, you know, it's like, I'm needing that. And they'll go there and, you know, but now you got one or two people representing millions and millions of people and it's just bullshit. It's not true. You're not getting through. The only way you're getting through is if you got the money to line the pockets to get the things done. Um, and therefore, we are back at the same kind of governmental structure here in the United States that we sought to overthrow. Like we have an aristocratic class. We pretend we don't have an aristocratic class because the majority of people are so involved in their own, you know, day to day life kept so low on the totem pole that they don't even get to have a real conversation about it. We're we're stuck debating the shadows on the wall in Plato's cave. You know, that's that's where that's where the majority of, of people find themselves if they really believe that we have representation anymore. Now there are people, there are good people that get through and that, you know, that fight against wars and that stand up and put their life on the line and that kind of thing. But for the most part, you know, it's a, it's a revolving door. I don't know how it is in Australia these days, but it's a revolving door of corporatist, you know, backpattery and, uh, and profiteering. Um, and un under the guise of virtue, under the guise of virtue, like, you know, Nancy Pelosi or Mitch McConnell will get on there and say, oh, we're doing our best to make sure that you all are taken care of in this time of need. And we're the only ones that could possibly do it for you. And we got to litigate this thing for six or seven weeks to make sure that we bail out all the corporations first. And then maybe we'll allow you to get like 600 a week, you know, during a pandemic, you know, when I make, you know, $2 million every 45 minutes. It's just astronomically, it's it's, it's insane. It's way beyond like people's wildest fantasy of uh, historical uh, 
malfeasance uh, governmentally. So international relations and foreign policy, as we know it for the last hundred years in the United States, uh, also in, in, in part in Australia and in England has been ran by the same network and in Canada. Um, everything we know from the United Nations to NATO has the fingerprints of these internationalist networks going back to the Pilgrim Society and these earlier transnationalist ideas. Um, this is where, you know, this is where we are. Um, I, I, I do believe that we can transcend these things by, you know, forming our own communities of thought. Um, but I really think the, the, the best way forward is to, you know, create our way out of the problems that we have. Uh, don't like being dependent upon the electrical grid? Well, let's focus our energy on creating free energy. What would that do to society? Would that, would that create more freedom for people or less freedom? The problem in this country is that when the inventors here create, you know, there's one guy who created this battery cell system. Tesla's, you know, done some things like this too uh, with Elon Musk. But there's one guy that created a battery cell system that could have been free energy for large, huge buildings and houses and things. But instead of making that available uh, ubiquitously to the American people, he sold it out to some corporation. You know, it's the old, you know, Nikola Tesla thing after Westinghouse lost his patents and JP Morgan got a hold of his patents and they came out to examine the, the free energy systems he had built and, JP Morgan says, well, where do I put the meter? You know, and Tesla's like, no meter. We're not doing a meter. He's like, oh, we're not doing this because, I, you know, it's, it's about profiteering. It's the same reason my, my slave labor iPhone, you know, runs out of battery because I haven't bought one in seven years. You know, there's a planned obsolescence built into our technology that forces us to constantly update and to, to, uh, to adapt to that new thing. And, and I admit it just as much as anybody with the knowledge that I have, uh, you know, I... I'm dependent upon uh, a lot of the uh, technologies, you know, uh, and, you know, I can separate myself from them for a time, but, you know, when John Taylor Gatto was doing all of this research, he was actually in the bottom of a courthouse, like for hours, like going through books and like pulling out passages. I can keyword search all this stuff. I can just like, you know, put in the information I'm looking for and pull it up. You know, I can, you know, I can reference this stuff in an instant. Um, and so we're, we, we, there are major, major benefits for it. Um, I find the personal brain uh, software to be one of the best things for organizing the way I think um, because it allows me to take the structure of my mind and the way that I correlate information and the way that I put them into categories and to visualize it and then to also make that available to other people to teach other people. Um, and I allow people to to purchase the personal brain and use it for their own personal research. They can add their own to it uh, and build upon what I've done because I, I've been working on this for, well, the greater part of the last 11 years. Um, whenever I find a topic that I'm interested in, whenever I'm doing research, I take those URLs and I translate them into the personal brain. Um, whenever I identify a structure, whenever I get a grasp on something, I put it in the personal brain in order to uh, be able to express that to other people and also to help my own recall because I think it, there's something about the visualization aspect of using that kind of software. I'm not a spokesman for their software. There's plenty of softwares that do this, but I like theirs. But I think that there's a brain training that goes on, you know, like you are reinforcing a connection that allows me to have the recall that I do um, uh, about, you know, topics that a lot of people, you know, frankly aren't interested in, but I think are 
are uh, are very you know pertinent to the kind of time that we're living in today. So I, I hope that answers your question. I know I I give long-winded answers, but I, I I'm trying to get better at telling a story full circle because I think when people hear this in its entirety, they will be able to see uh, the essence of of what he, what I'm really trying to perpetuate. What I'm trying to to get people to recognize their own power. Um, uh, and, and, and to do so in a way that is humbling, that allows you to recognize nuance and not become so ideologically involved. Thanks, Kevin. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. I, I really appreciate you going to all the trouble of researching and of gathering all the data and putting it all together and making sense of it and then coming out the other end and going, oh my God, I got to start this journey again. I got to start it again and put it out there in a different way and monetize it in some way and turn it into art and make it entertaining. And, you know, that's this whole new journey of like this autonomous journey. Like it, mm-hmm. you're an autonomous man, you're a free man and you're doing what you love to do. You, you have the freedom, the time to do it. And that's really like this magical gift that um, I think could be the answer you know for you know this you know ominous technological age that we're in and all the job losses and you know and all the you know shut down with the whole um pandemic sort of stuff and with the, the the monetary sort of how do you make money in a new age how do you make money online when you don't have a job anymore when you're your whole your world has been trained to, you know, drive a truck for your whole life. You know, like that's, mm-hmm. that's kind of, um, you know, and when we zoom out, like what you're saying, when we zoom out and see the world from a bigger perspective, now we can start to think in a different way. And now we can start to incorporate our knowledge sets, our skill sets in terms of specific, you know, um, subject matters, turn that and, repurpose that in a way repurpose that and to take that and provide that to value you know provide mm-hmm. that skill set that knowledge to another generation potentially mm-hmm. as metaphor as um you know as as a different sort of a vehicle for you know providing that wisdom that you get from the ages of having lived so many so much of your life it, potentially that could be that is the answer to finding autonomy, even if you are just a farmer. I'm a far- yeah. farmer's son. Nice. <laughs> I went through, a, a, you know, like a, an, a preceptorship, uh, an apprenticeship in, in herb in farming and then herbalism. So we processed medicinal herbs into medicines. Nice. And I found amazing parallels and similarities between that process of taking a plant and turning it into a useful material that can be, you know, that can last for decades and, you know, can be used as a medicine for, you know, for this pandemic that we're in. <laughs> it's, it's very liberating to know that, you know, my immune system, I have that in my own hands that, the there if there is a flu if there is a virus it's like i know how to deal with that i know how to treat that it's um probably one of the best gifts that you can have in life is that autonomy and 
without without um without going into that, I'm I want to hear from you in terms of what your autonomy, like what's your vision for the future and how you're taking your art because you're creating art and you're, you know, at least beginning the journey of, of, you know, or continuing the journey of transforming your brain metaphorically and physically into art. And I'm curious to hear your vision for the future in, in the current times, you know, 2020 coronavirus and where people can find you on the net cool how they can stay in Um, touch how they can get the brain how they can get the downloads okay um great points there um that's a lot 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 for me to deal with um as far as where i see things going um for myself um i'm i'm working hard to to become as autonomous as possible um, I have a lot of goals in life that I've not yet got to explore. Uh, there are a lot of things um, that are, of course, context dependent with what we have going on in the world today. Um, and with the kind of work that I do, um, it is in some ways becoming more difficult for uh, independent creators to get their message out there because a lot of these tech giants are are cracking down on on speech, on free speech. Now. Um, I don't uh, focus daily at the time on the current events where I need to, you know, speculate on how this fits into the bigger picture immediately in real time, which is what usually gets people in a lot of trouble um, is because that they're, they're seeking, as I kind of said in the pre-call to, you know, to, to be the one that, that is the catch all for whatever ideology is the prevalent answer at the time or the, the prevailing answer at the time. Um, I, I don't focus on that as much. I'm, I'm more interested in the history. Um, in, 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 my, in my own life, I'm very focused on the current events, how that works out. But as far as needing to um, attenuate or to extrapolate all of that to my ideology all the time and to kind of create a artificial worldview and a cognitive dissonance that I don't even know I'm creating, I feel those are all dead in paths. I feel like... Um, I think nuance and uh, recognizing the different sides of many arguments, uh, recognizing that um, good can come from bad things, unfortunately, you know, like um, there are medical advancements that have come from, you know, directly from people that I don't support and what they did and other things they did uh, in, in, in setting up the education system. That's because logic exists within systems and I can't undo that. And that's what I was kind of getting at earlier. Um, is that uh, I don't need to be like extremely upset at John D. Rockefeller. Like I didn't know that dude. He's dead. Uh, I wasn't alive during his time. He did a lot of things I disagree with. He did a lot of things that are just like basic human nature things at the time. The the drive to you know a lot of lot of a lot of things there that are very humanizable. Uh, but I don't I don't that doesn't mean I agree with what his worldview was or David Rockefeller's worldview for the Council on Foreign Relations and these things like that. I just don't let these these nefarious creatures, these people that we uh, ascribe superhuman attributes to, uh, dictate my worldview on a regular basis. Because that would be just running around all the time saying, George Soros, George Soros is funding it all, you know, or whatever. And that's not how the world works. George Soros is like 90, you know, 
Like if you really want to know what George Soros is important for, look into his protege uh, or look into the fact that he was a protege of Karl Popper, one of the most influential cyberneticists of the last uh, 150 years. Look into like where the new society organization comes from. Um, where all of these tides foundation societies come from. What is the ideology behind that? What is the cybernetic mechanism that he explicitly tells people he used to create all of those organizations? What is cybernetics? Um, So for me, uh, to be cliche, man, it's just knowledge is, is power all the way around. Learn your own family history. The reason why these dynasties are able to perpetuate themselves the way they do is because they all have something on the wall in their house that tells them where they came from and how they got there, and who did what when, and why they did it, and how that led to their wealth, or how that led to their their poverty, how that led to what, you know, a lot of us don't have that. Uh, I think it's very important for individuals to get in touch with their own genealogical history, to have an idea where they come from, to understand uh, the smallness of the world community over time. Um, there's not, it's not a coincidence that like all but two presidents in the United States uh, descend from the barons of Runnymede and through Charlemagne, right? Like, that's because the world was way smaller. You know, I'm related to some of these people. Like, you're related to some of these people. I know people that are related to Roman, you know, rulers. And if you really look into this stuff, you get a picture. doesn't mean you have to incorporate it into your worldview. You aren't those people. They lived in different times. But being able to see, to, to see, to really visualize the different objective Morale, morals and ethics and uh, worldviews that exist over different periods of time in relation to the technological advancements of their age, in relation to the religious uh, innovations of their age, in relation, in relation to their uh, moral and ethical uh, evolution. Um, I think the best thing that we can all do is focus on that ourselves. And uh, you know, bring the world into alignment with your own version of integrity. Because I truly believe that hell is the process or the, the, the milieu that is created by living out of integrity with yourself. And uh, I think that's what hell always has been. We, we put it under demon energy and all these different things. But it's, it's when you recognize a contradiction within yourself uh, when you realize you're acting against your own interest, um, whether that be, you know, a moral or an ethical decision, or maybe it's a personal decision or a, a thing you said to somebody four years ago that you regret or whatever, you know, um, there's a lot of self-work that I think is most important um, in, in this environment. Now, as far as becoming autonomous, um, if people would like to support my work, they can check out uopmedia.com or unityofthepolis.com. I also have a podcast on Podomatic, which will shortly be on iTunes, um, called The Ominous Continuity, uh, which I've been working on periodically over the last three, four years. Um, I have chapters from my book that I made available for free on my website. Um, I would specifically start in order with the uh, Professor Carol Quigley in the article that said too little and kind of graduate up from there because I kind of lay it out in a, uh, you know, a, 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 a path of understanding that will allow you to view this as a cohesive whole and while, why it is important to your life. Um, you know, times are tough right now. I, I, I don't have a overarching worldview value judgment to say about what is going on today with this coronavirus. Um, I will say that in 2005, I wrote a song called so-called civilized, which the entire premise of it was a coming pandemic. And, uh, the, 
idea that uh, we were going to be paralyzed, uh, that we were going to have social distancing, that we were going to be under a uh, lockdown, that we were going to have uh, immunity passports where we're going to be checked at quarantine checkpoints in order to do basic things. This is not just like some, you know, uh, unpredictable event. You know, pandemics have happened over time. I was thinking about this in 2005 and wrote a song about it, which I'll be releasing in a couple weeks uh, under uh, a project called Decibel Poets. Uh, I'm releasing a four-track EP called the American Crisis Radio uh, EP, which is a play on Thomas Paine's American Crisis, which was one of the documents that fomented the American Revolution uh, and and dealt with uh, the way the United States would interact with its oppressor at the time. Um, and uh, it's a four-track EP, uh, three 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 tracks and then one, uh, one remix. Uh, but, but, uh, I, I, I try to, uh, I try to stay balanced, you know, like I have these intellectual pursuits, uh, but I also have a, an artistic side that allows me to, uh, do and say what I feel without judgment, uh, without somebody else's worldview, uh, causing them, uh, you know, cognitive dissonance that, that leads to an attack on my positions because I recognize my positions are my positions and, and anybody else's are theirs. We can come to an understanding. We can come to a common understanding, um, but we don't all require to have a ubiquitous worldview. Um, in some ways, it would be great if we could agree upon the basics, but, you know, we're going we're gonna to always come across this uh, this point in which you know, we're, our definitions are going to be crossed on what that is, um, especially when, you know, when religion is involved or spirituality or just meditation, individual thoughts on things, uh, individual ethics, individual morals. Um, some people have a wider uh, field of compassion than other people. Some people include animals in that. Some people don't. Some people, you know, there we, we, um, there's a lot of self-work that is not uh, addressed because it's so easy to point the finger and to try to create an overarching narrative that fits the worldview you want to have. Like if you believe that in the history of vaccines, no vaccine has ever worked ever. You should read some books for sure, but you're going to, you're going to run with that and you're going to believe that there's no vaccine that's ever worked ever. And you're not going to think about like, well, why did they do it to animals? Like, why do we vaccinate animals before we eat them? Um, does it always work? No, of course not. Um, if you believe that wearing a mask is the most oppressive thing going on in the world today, holy shit, where have you been for the last 19 years? You know what I'm saying? Like, while, while they've had all this money to perpetuate global war and empire over lies, over lies, you know, going into Iraq on false pretenses. You know, I was on the streets for those protests. I'm not under the illusion I helped stop them, you know. But, but like, the idea that, that like, the most oppressive thing that's ever happened is to, like, ask you to, to wear a mask to go into a store, um, I, it's a little silly to me. Because, like, why do you think doctors and nurses wear N95 masks to begin with? Like, as a precaution because they are effective in some way. Now, if you're talking about a bandana, you're talking about like a piece of cloth, or you're talking about a screen you cut off your front door. Yeah, these are not like effective ways. And I'm not for like a top-down overarching mandate. I really wish that like people were were like responsible enough to like take responsible for responsibility for their own stuff, you know? Like, um, but it all comes down to a disagreement upon the science. Um, you know, if we are in the midst of a global pandemic, yeah, it's not the bubonic plague. 
It's not the 1918 uh, uh, pandemic. Um, It it seems to be uh, in line with a lower percentage than obviously what they called for. But see, that doesn't cause me any consolation because I view human beings as intrinsically valuable individuals. I believe that if you view human beings as a statistic, um, you are dehumanizing people. Um, so, so for me, if we're, t- I can exist in like seven different realities at once. We can have this conversation from seven different points of view based on whatever data point you take in, whatever logic within systems you're incorporating. But like, if, if I want to have it at face value, like, you know, I don't want to hurt anybody, right? Like if there is a genuine thing going on and I've already told you, like, I know three people that lost their grandparents. Yeah. They were in their seventies. Uh, you know, they may have been on their way out anyway, but if, if, if they died one day before they were supposed to, that's, that sucks for their family and for the people that loved them and cared about them, you know? And I see a lot of people who just minimize these deaths. Like, Oh, that guy was fat. Oh, he was in the, he was African-American. He's, he's more prone to get it. Oh no, this guy has cystic fibrosis. Ah, you know, that's just a specificity died. It's You know, no, these are all intrinsically valuable individuals to each other, to themselves, to, to their families, to their people, you know, have a little bit of humanity. Yeah. We can have a logical conversation about if we need to shut down entire societies for something that seems to be in line with uh, some flus. It's, it could be 10 times worse than the flu. Uh, there are people that are suffering with it differently than other people. There are people that are long haulers that are having seizures and having all kinds of other problems. And somebody will step in and say, oh, well, they've got some underlying thing. They've, you know, they've got pre-existing conditions. It's not going to affect me. Well, I know people, I know, I know of a 36 year old woman who was perfectly healthy. who's dead. You know, that's, that's fucked up. That's messed up. Excuse me. It's not good. It's not, it's not acceptable. Uh, does that mean that I think that she would have been saved by us all putting on a handkerchief and going into Walmart or whatever? No, not necessarily. I don't know the individual circumstances of that, but like take a breather, look around and take, take stock of what's going on and, and then, and then act accordingly. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm against uh, tyrannical mandates. I don't believe that the government has that authority over people. But I, I, I also believe that like five-year-old kids shouldn't drive cars. You know, like I don't believe five-year-old kids should be behind the wheel of a car, like on a regular basis. Like I don't want to be driving down a two-lane highway with five-year-old kids driving cars. You know what I'm saying? Like, so somewhere in there is a responsibility for somebody to make sure that five-year-old kids aren't driving cars. And I'm using that as an analogy to the uneducated person that would make assumptions about society and about a, uh, about a, a non-existent atomistic uh, res- uh, irresponsibility that we have to other people. Like we, there are some things uh, collectively that we owe each other. I'm, I'll just stop it at that. Like there are some things that we can have a conversation about that we, that we, you know, that a common respect, the common courtesy, don't let your five-year-old drive cars, right? Like we don't license five-year-old car drivers. Um, it's not a smart thing to do. They don't have the weight. They don't have a booster seat. They don't have long enough legs. They're not, they shouldn't be driving a car. Right. So, so if we're going to live in this, like, you know, non-existent, not, we're going to get rid of all government, Larkin Rose is president or whatever you want to say. I don't know. Like are we can have five-year-olds driving cars. Yeah. I'm using that as an analogy to be silly, but it's real, you know, like there was something there. Um, it's not all just like G. Edward Griffin, collectivism is bad versus the world. You know, there's a lot of good stuff to take from G. Edward Griffin's critiques of collectivism. But there's also like a good reason 
why you probably shouldn't yell fire in a crowded theater because like there's somebody in there who's handicapped and like they might fall down because they got to rush out. They think it's on fire. You know, like, don't be a dick. You know, like, why would you do that? Like, why would, you know, like uh, forget a mandate. You don't maybe don't need a mandate to know that, but I can't pretend that most people act upon the same type of decision-making that I do. If you turn on the TV, you can see that they don't, right? There are people out in the street protesting, like defund the police and not wearing a mask or whatever, whatever, you know, like everybody has their own ideological thing. And, and, uh, but like, you know, uh, if you get enough people together and agree that the sky is blue, that's cool. You've made a communal decision, but you're always going to find somebody else. that's going to be like, eh, you know, I'm kind of colorblind. I don't see it that way. You know, like I don't, I don't see it that way. And in a country like the United States, I don't, I'm not as familiar with the governmental structure and the way society is structured where you are, but where it's structured here is like this, you know, a, a lot of the pushback against this, it comes from a, like a rugged individualistic, uh, mythology, um, uh, you know, kind of this like Anglo-Saxon uh, myth that existed before the creation of England that Jefferson and others bought into. Uh, this uh, this like yeoman yeoman genius out on the prairie, you know, like that that is just atomistically not involved in anybody else's anything, and just you know, it's it's not the reality that we live in. Like we live in the reality where they can drone bomb you from your cell phone location. Like get with it, you know. Like that's <laughs> the reality we're in. We're not in the one where you think that you're actually. You know, like you, you are separate from everything else individually. Uh, there's an aspect of that. I love that. I love that artistically. Uh, but, but I, I just, I don't want five-year-olds driving cars. Uh, and, and, uh, and so any mechanism that, that stops that from, you know, cause like, I don't want drunk people driving cars either. Like I, I, I know people that have died from drunk driving. I know people that have ruined their life from drinking and using pills and other things. Um, sure. Uh, ideally if we could all like be on the same wavelength and we can all just agree that like some people like to do heroin and die and we just accept that then then i guess we can just like create enclaves where people can just go do heroin and die or whatever uh but then we're talking about the same kind of complaints that people have about government oh you're creating death panels you're just letting these people die or you're you know um everything is more complex than the soundbite and that's the problem with our technology is it creates a soundbite uh, and it usually is done from a perspective of telling you what you want to hear. And and that's through cookies and through reinforcement. Uh, if all you do is spend your time on Drudge Report and Rush Limbaugh or, you know, Mark Levine and Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson or all these, you know, right wing figures. Or if you do it on the left with Rachel Maddow and these people in the United States, whoever, like it, it's garbage in, garbage out. You know, like input processing, output processing. If you spend your days just researching the QAnon conspiracy you're probably going to believe in a bunch of stuff that's not true. You know, like you're going to believe in a bunch of things that aren't true. You can, you can, in this country, we have the freedom to create as many fantastical, irrational worldviews as we want. And, and, and like that is order out of chaos, order out of chaos. That's, that's what that is. That's, so that was the purpose of the founding of this country was to, to create a, an environment in which, uh, you know, you ascribe freedom to the ethereal plane. Like God granted us this freedom. God, you, you know, we don't agree on who God is. None of us do. Uh, but God, nature, granted us this freedom. We we ascribe our freedom to natural rights. There's no such thing as natural rights. It's a great concept that we use words to agree upon, but there is no actual like, you know, like cherry tree in the forest that has the commandments written on it. You know, like here's natural rights. No, this is something that was agreed upon over time by people. 
you know, and not everybody agrees with it. And when one person doesn't agree, you can create your own logic within systems and go do your own thing, you know, but like there are people on the Trivium Education Facebook page that will tell you that if you're not a vegan, you're not using the Trivium correctly. For real. There are people on there right now posting every day that exact sentiment, you know, but, but, but I live in a country that, you know, is predominantly Judeo-Christian uh, in, in its ethos. And we've, we've bought into the idea that like we, man has dominion of all things and it all belongs to us. And it's all under this hierarchy of the great chain of being. And if people want to learn about this concept of the great chain of being, uh, you want to go back and look at a paper by a protege of, uh, of Ficino under the Medici uh, clan. And the name of this, if I can pull up my personal brain and try to make it seem like I'm seamless, and this will give you a good reason to see what I use my brain for. Because at the moment, I've forgotten the title of the document that I'd like to reference for you. Um, let's see here. You can cut out any, uh, any silences if you'd like. Let me get this pulled up here for you. <clears throat> the idea of the great chain of being is essentially that there is a hierarchy of man to beast uh, and to inanimate objects and to the perfect one. This is an idea that filters through Plato and through people that interpret Plato's work. Um, but one of the founding documents of uh, what, what makes up the hierarchy of Freemasonry um, was created by this guy um, and it's referenced today as one of their one of their founding documents that outlines their degree structure uh, let's see Ficino Marsh uh, Marsilio Ficino okay the individual you're looking for is a guy by the name of Pico della Marandola M-I-R-A-N-D-O-L-A uh, he lived from 1463 to 1494. He wrote a uh, oration called the Oration on the Dignity of Man. And this is the document that uh, is, is, uh, spells out the supreme architect and the craftsman, uh, the ideas in Freemasonry of the gradations of the world, the idea that there are different gradations of being. Um, and this is uh, also talked about in a book called The Great Chain of Being by Arthur Lovejoy. Um, but yeah, so all in all, I think, you know, creating a decentralized system uh, that nullifies existing power structures is a, a uh, personal goal of mine. Um, do I think that it is possible in a country whose ubiquity exists as a pretext to everybody being able to do their own thing? Probably not. So the best that we can do is to create small or ever-growing uh, communities of thought that have an organic unity to a similar logic and a similar understanding and hope that those disparities within that group aren't enough to dissolve it. Um, and I, I think that that's, that is our path forward. But I, I, the older I get, the more I see that it's really the, the self-work, uh, you know, the bringing yourself into integrity with your own actions and things like that, uh, that is, that is the most controllable. Um, and, uh, I, I think there's also like a, there's probably like a, a, a nice like gradient chart you could show <laughs> that would show like the level of cynicism, like the older you get, because I I'm there, dude. Like I, you know, like, I don't know if you're familiar with the American comedian, George Carlin, you know, uh, 
but uh, you know, he's often used by the right wing and, and libertarians and things like that to like make their points. But he actually was a progressive who supported like Bernie Sanders and he supported like uh, Hillary Clinton and he didn't vote since like 1973 or something like that. But he's always used by the right side and libertarians to make points because he makes a lot of really good points that are freedom based, but he was actually like a pretty progressive, like, you know, new deal kind of guy. Um, but you know, he, he, his, I understand his cynicism more than I did as a child. Let me just put it that way. Uh, his his view that uh, when you're born in America, he said, but it, it really can apply anywhere. You know, you you get a fr- you get a front row seat to the circus. You know, you get a front row seat to the shit show. And uh, at a certain point, like, um, you know, I I don't believe uh, I'm I don't buy into philosophies. I don't except other people trying to use their philosophy to hold me in line with somebody else's like, I'm doing it wrong. Like, Oh, you're not a libertarian because you believe this one thing. No, like it's not the way the world works, man. It's, it's not based on those kinds of uh, ideological divides. Um, there's a lot more nuance. And I think that an inability to recognize that nuance is, is no different than like, you know, some of the religious persecutions that took place over time. Um, uh, because we, we believe things religiously that are not objective in reality. Um, and the only way that we can have an objective reality is to come to terms, uh, meaning to come to an agreement upon terms, upon what words mean. Um, you know, I, I've never been a big stickler for grammar. Like, yeah, I get it. I, 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 I I try my best to spell things correctly. I know the correct way of spelling things, but the idea that that somebody needs to be ostracized or made a barbarian because they don't spell things the way you do is is what's wrong with the world. Uh, it's a failure to recognize the intrinsic value of the other, um, and a failure to recognize a uh, larger compassion uh, for other people. Um, people who are less fortunate, people who, uh, are, are, uh, you know, born in different circumstances than oneself. Um, and I think that, you know, these things over time create a lot of divisions within society. And we see that today with like the black lives matter protest and the, the killing of innocent, uh, you know, individuals, uh, uh, the overuse of force and policing and, uh, all of these things. Uh, it's, it's, you know, I, I think that all of these movements can be capitalized by people on by people who have political agendas, but to only say that that's what's going on and that people don't have actual grievances is also not right. You know, like there's a, there's a middle ground of, of historical uh, significance um, that I think is, is worth exploring. Um, do I think that like going out and protesting during a pandemic is probably the smartest thing to be doing? Nah, probably not. Um, do I think that this, you know, this pandemic is as bad as, as what the, you know, the Oxford statistical people put out? Of course not. No, they said millions and millions of people were going to die. Right. You know, uh, Bill Gates, you know, had been planning for this type of an event for a long time. Does that mean that I think that it's definitely a pandemic? Like definitely. I don't know. I don't have the information. I don't sit at that. I'm not in the captain's seat to see that. And I can look at, I can say like, Hey man, like it seems like they were working on bat viruses at the Wuhan lab. Like, you know, 
Like right when they banned them in the United States, they started doing these experiments over there. And then down the road from the Wuhan lab, a wet market just happens to spread a bat virus. You know, like, yeah, Occam's razor tells me there's something much more going on here. If you look at the way it affects like the different toll receptors and the different cleavage sites, uh, the furin cleavage sites, there's a lot of evidence that, that, you know, uh, may bear out that this was a a biological weapon. Uh, In which case, maybe the people that aren't taking it serious should think a little bit more serious about it. Because a biological weapon sounds pretty bad. Um, if it's just like a common flu thing and we can all just pretend, you know, we don't know. So that's my point is that like, we're like, we're on the captain of the, we're, we're on the deck of the enterprise looking at a planet from afar and it's our own. And we haven't determined what the problem is yet. We don't know what the civilizational squabble is yet. We don't know what the scientific problem is. We don't know. We don't know. And so running around with like a chicken with our head cut off and, and pretending that we have all the answers is, is, is not the answer. Um, so the older I get, the more cynical I get, but the more able to recognize nuance and, uh, to see the other and to like, you know, value somebody else's opinion as intrinsically as my own. Uh, and if fault can be found in either opinion, being able to come to an agreement upon it. Like, I think these are the basics we need to start with. Like I'm all for like the ideas of nullification and nullifying federal laws and bringing things into a decentralized environment. Uh, I like what's happened with the legalization of marijuana. It should have never been illegal in the first place. Uh, I think these decentralizations, these crashes of absolutism, these recognition of oppressive systems in the past that they used to, you know, like if you look into the history of it in the United States and, you know, like largely uh, banned as a result of industrial uh, you know, uh, issues. They wanted to, you know, make sure that they had a monopoly on their plastics and things like that. They didn't want hemp becoming a big, uh, driver in society. Didn't want that to take over their industries. So like different individuals put their money behind these anti marijuana campaigns and anti whatever. And I just happen to believe that if we are all intrinsically valuable, autonomous individuals, what you put into your own body is up to you. Um, I mean, if you're doing heroin and stuff, I'm going to advise you that that's a bad idea, you know, um, that and show you like, you know, before and after pictures of people that have done meth and stuff like that, you know, but, uh, <laughs> um, but you know, I, we all I, have yeah. freedom of choice at the end of the right. day. And, and, and reality is black. It is white and it is all the shades of green, gray in between. And, uh, you know, like to, to cherry pick one over the other, really just is creating bigger blind spots for us individually. And then if we, the more we do that, the more we get lost in our own narrative within our own story. And, um, and the more we isolate ourselves just internally. So it's like, it seems like, um, the most well-rounded approach is sort of have an open eye and open mind and to be flexible in your thinking to, um, you know, to, to be able to take in that new input and to integrate mm-hmm. it because there is dynamic inputs coming in at the moment and, you know, things are changing and the enterprise is steering in a different direction. And, you yeah. know, we all got to like be aware of the new vistas coming about. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, I really think that's, I really think that that hits home uh, with where we are. Um, I, I'm not sure where we're going. Um I, I think that, um, you know, as a, you know, we're, we're still at the level of civilization where nationalism is the, uh, you know, the, 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 the fail safe, right? Like, uh, 
at the international level, like at international relations level, like where they use nomenclature that most individuals don't know or study, like liberal realism or complex interdependence, they create these theories within their own insulated ideology of international relations. And they do so in order to steer nations to make certain decisions, right? But at the level of international relations right now, like at the level of the presidency, right? Like, or at the level of the prime minister, the world exists in a a state of anarchy, a, a what they call international anarchy uh, at the nation state level, because you have nation states that aren't acting in unison with each other, uh, that are acting for their own best interest, um, which as individuals do, because nations are acting as individuals, right? That's the, that's the idea. Uh, and uh, that's why we, we, for some odd reason throughout history, constantly vest so much power in like one person, which just seems, it seems outdated. Um, uh, but but that's what that's where it is. You know, we we like internationalism at right now is in a state of inner in anarchy, voluntarist anarchy. Like we voluntarily decide to interact with other countries or not at the inter- at the international level. They decide what tariffs and what trade and what you know. That's what that's what it is. It's in a state of international anarchy. And the goal of the international relations people was to bring that into unison. And the way they wanted to do that initially was like through the League of Nations. Uh, and then through the United Nations, uh, and then through NATO. NATO is a project of Lionel Curtis. You know, um, do you think that? Do you think there's a, a a state of harmony, like at a like on another fractal level, on a financial aspect? Like there's someone's got the the, the balance sheet, and they're going, oh yeah, checks and balances are going to work out. At the end of the day, we're going to make more money, or we're going to create more money and we're going to siphon that off and, you know, control yeah. more of yeah. it at the end of the day. And it's like, Oh, well, we're just inventing more of what we already have. Yeah. Yeah. They create money out of thin air. They went through these federal reserve systems, through the, the uh, bank of international settlements, the, uh, you know, Deutsche bank, these internationalists, uh, people that exist at the internationalist level. Um, it's, it's difficult for the everyday worker to be able to cognize, uh, you know, what transnationalism actually is, you know, like in the United States here, most of the right wing or, or conservative politics, um, going back to the John Birch society and all these things, um, relies upon a very originalist, uh, intent, uh, interpretation of the American founding documents. So they interpret it one way, uh, by, by picking and choosing who the leaders are of their philosophical idea and then you have the liberals that pick and choose who their leaders are of the philosophical idea and have this little communion of these two parties that never get anything done. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. Um, I think that there are individuals historically, uh, you know, these robber barons, the Carnegie's, the Rockefellers, the Rothschilds um, who have played both sides of history. I can show you where, you know, Lord Rothschild, uh, Nathan Rothschild, uh, earlier, uh, earlier Rothschilds uh, were involved in, you know, financing the Hessian soldiers for the British because the British didn't want to kill their own people, right? They didn't want to come over here and kill British Americans. So they hired Germans. <laughs> they, they, they got the Rothschilds to go hire a bunch of Germans, the Hessians, to fight in the American Revolution against the Americans for the British um, in some instances on both sides. Um, and so that still happens today. Absolutely. Um, you know, like, uh, how ubiquitous has Amazon become like one guy in like his house 
uh, created a order online service and now it's the most ubiquitous international organization. You guys got more billions than anybody on the planet, right? Like, and, and he's created a distribution system that would rival the British empire's opium trade in, in triplicate, you know, like he distributes everything. He's not just shipping drugs. He'll ship you tampons. He'll ship you computers. He'll ship you, you know, telescopes, whatever. Like, and so, yeah. Um, the, the, the idea is that, you know, like throughout like the American in American history of the last like hundred years, right? 150 years. Uh, you had this big communist scare because of internationalists were funding both sides of all these different communist dictators overseas and propping up China and opening up the world to China and this kind of thing. Um, and they were doing so because that, you know, capitalism, capital, capital uh, acquisition was the overarching aim. Uh, it didn't really matter what the value judgments were. It didn't matter if they killed their own people. It didn't matter any of that. As long as they could get a financial foothold, right? Like if you could find a path of, of commerce for your tea or for your opium, it was valuable. And then you would secure that. And then you create generations of, of your family that, that, uh, that profit off of that. And then you get skull and bones like uh, the, that's how that was created. Right. Uh, through, through the, the Russell trust, it was all based on the opium trade and uh, they were their, their, their veneration, by the way, just as an aside is, is uh, Demosthenes who was a student of Isocrates. Like he went to Isocrates school. Uh, so like all of these like secret societies at collegiate universities are all based on the trivium. Thanks for listening to the quantum feedback podcast. For more information, resources discussed in this episode, or if you're ready to create your own quantum feedback and to receive the flow of the vortex of your own creation, then go to quantumfeedback.org.